One, two, three. Welcome to Three Song Stories. This is the podcast that taps into the way songs bind themselves to our memories on what seems like an almost cellular level. Thanks for listening. I'm Mike Canary. Our guest today is Woody Hansen. To say Woody is a native of Fort Myers would I suppose be a kind of understatement, if that's even possible. His family arrived in this part of Florida in 1866. That's basically when Fort Myers came to be. His roots go back five generations all the way to Manuel A. Gonzalez, who was the first civilian resident here after the fort, which was built during the Seminole Indian Wars, was deactivated at the end of the Third Seminole War. His great-grandfather, Dr. William Hansen, settled in Fort Myers in 1884. I'm going to describe Woody as a polymath, and I had to look that up, but I knew there was a word for it, because he's definitely someone who knows and does lots of different things and has widely varied interests and areas of expertise. He owned and operated a real estate firm for 40 years before closing it a couple years ago to move to Dublin, Ireland to get a PhD from Trinity College, which he's still working toward. His dissertation, which is on liberal democracy and radical dissent, has connected Woody with Ramsey Clark, who was the liberal attorney general during the LBJ administration at the end of the 1960s. Woody was a clubhouse boy for the Pittsburgh Pirates and the Kansas City Royals in the late 60s and early 70s. He's maintained a close relationship with Florida Seminole and Miccosukee Indians. His family's connection with the tribes dates back to his grandfather, W. Stanley Hansen, who was known as the White Medicine Man. Woody's got five sons, ages 27 to 35. He builds guitars and probably lots of other stuff. And he's been on our list since launching this show 120 episodes ago. And now we're off. Hey there, Woody Hanson. How you doing? I'm doing good. How about you? I'm doing very good. Thank you for doing this. Like I said, you've been on our list since the beginning. Not that I tried <laughs> that hard, but I knew we'd cross paths one day. Um, have you always been known as Woody? Uh, yes. Uh, right from the beginning. Right from the beginning. Is that uh, your given name? Uh, no, it's my real name. It's Woodward. So, oh, Woodward. Uh, okay, uh, okay. Um, Hanson Street in Fort Myers. Any relation? Uh, yes, that's my um, great-grandfather's subdivision um, piece of land. So when you plot it, you can name the streets anything you want. So I guess they... Um, then spend a lot of time thinking over, and they just went with Hanson Street. Okay. Uh, so that sort of alludes to the fact that your family has been in Fort Myers since Fort Myers, correct? Yes. Uh, my mother's side, we, uh, Gonzalez's, arrived in 1866, Hanson's 1884, and so we've pretty much been around for a while. So you're a direct descendant of the person known as the Fort, sort of founder of Fort Myers, Manuel Gonzalez. My great-great-grandfather, yes. Were you aware of that growing up? Was that part of just common knowledge in your family? Yeah, yeah my mother was always into history. She's a Gonzalez, and... Um, so I was aware of it, but it just didn't have that didn't have any meaning, you know, like it later, like it does now. Was know? there a moment when all of a sudden it started to really like you felt it as something that was really cool and important? Like how long did that take? Uh, yeah, um, it's funny, but my mom passed away in '04, my dad in '05, so I was left with all these archives, um, and they took me on a mystical spiritual journey. Um, one way went to Spain, you know, to Gonzales, and the other way took me down to the big cypress swamp and the Everglades with the Miccosukee Seminole Indians. And um, 
that you know so after my mom and dad died in those archives um uh, i found them yeah that's when you know it opened a doorway that you know uh, my life took a change. How much of those archives are still yet to be gone through, or have you gotten? Th- I get the sense from like your Facebook posts and whatnot that you're still sorting through them. Um, I c- gave the Atatiki Museum uh, down the Big Cypress Swamp, you know, the Indian Reservation, Seminole, um, s- over six thousand items in, in my um, grandfather's archives, and oddly enough, my nephew. I was here like a week ago. He lives in North Carolina, and I gave him everything else. You know, I said, <laughs> you go, you do Gonzalez, man. I, I did Hanson. Because you know, this stuff is spooky. It's spiritual. I mean, it'll, it'll weigh you down. Yeah, I imagine. And and we can get... Uh, yeah, I was just curious. What ooh, what kind of sort of artifacts did you give to the museum? Um, you know, mostly photographs. And what what gave them value was um, my grandfather spoke the language, Miccosukee. Very few non-tribal members spoke Miccosukee. So what he did, you know, envisioning this future time, you know, when, um, he would write the names on the back in Miccosukee and then the given name. So what would happen is, um, you know, tribal members would contact me as they got to know me and trusted and trusted me and so forth, and they would come to my office on weekends, you know, just in like groups, and you know, to see who they are, you know, and and I'll never forget every. It's what I call an Indian moment. So Ava Billy came, you know, with her brothers Danny. You're talking like about you know, medicine men. Mm-hmm. And um, so came in, and I was whining and moaning because I'd been on Palm Beach. Um, I did an exhibit for the tribe at their annual meeting, and I came back. I was worn out. And just and I said to, to Ava, I said, uh, you know, I, I'm worn out. You know, it's like I'm, it's time to get rid of this stuff. <laughs> and she looked me right in the eye, and she goes, you, you know, you're not getting rid of anything. Your grandfather is finishing his life's journey through you. Yeah. You know, like, oh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And then after you know, they were through and they go to leave, Ava let her brothers walk out first in the door, and then she kind of closes the door and turns around and puts her finger like right on my nose and says, pay attention to your dreams. And then so uh, another one of those you know, mystical and spiritual moments. Was, I got a little chill right there. Um uh, okay, we're going to get on the, the, the train, the music train. We'll get back to that, some of that stuff, I am certain. Um, what was the musical background of your childhood here in Fort Myers? What was, you know, when you were young, what were your parents listening to? Just what was sort of the musical fabric? Um, the, you know, first of all, the cohort was my sister, who was seven, seven years older than, than I was. Um, music always struck a chord with me. It's, it seemed to me like, you know, the only th- one of the few things that would silence my mind, you know, because I'm a, I don't know, I think a lot. And, uh, um, but, and so I got a guitar, like, you know, when I was in third grade, you know, Sears and Roebuck, literally Sears and Roebuck catalog, you know, silver tone and acoustic. And so my buddies and I, we had garage bands, you know, so I grew up listening to Louie Louie, you know, Wooly Bully, Little Black Egg, um, Love Potion Number 9. You know, and it's more or less I track my sister, you know, like she's a leading indicator, you know, I'm a lag. 
You know, but then it came that fateful night in February of 64, you know, when the Beatles came came on Ed Sullivan's show, you know, because everything, you know, everything's about context. Because Kennedy had just been killed, you know. We're talking like two months later, you know, our world's upside down, you know. Like, I'm a kid in third grade, you know, you know the, your world has just been turned upside down. Then the Beatles came on. And it just seemed like it was given back to you, you know, like civilization was going to survive. And um, and after that, you know, with the British invasion, you know, it just then it, then it just morphs, you know. Then you're then it's like you know Buffalo Springfield. Suddenly the lyrics mattered, you know. It 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 became a, a more of a storyline instead of puppy love, you know, and stuff like that. It, it spoke to social, you know, issues and, and judicial and fairness, and, and suddenly it gave life much more. It gave my spirit. It enriched my soul as opposed to my heart. You know, like like with love and you know with little, you know, young kids, you know, falling in love. And all right, that. right, right. Um, was that sort of social awareness something that was imbued in your family? You know, I'm I'm wondering because you're. You know, your grandfather was so close with Mikasuki, that was probably very much of an outlier thing for a, a, a man like him to be doing at that time, you know? Yeah, that's a, you know, that's a very good observation because um, when the Indians would come to town, like in the 20s and 30s, uh, you know, they weren't always treated, you know, like, you know, cultural icons of Florida's, you know, the legendary historical status. Um, they were looked upon, you know, often... Um, you know, as the bottom of the food chain, so to speak. You know, and um, and and my grandfather embraced them, and they they would come to Fort Myers and set up cheekies in his yard, and bring my father pet deer, a whooping crane, stuff like that. So yeah, the answer is yes. Um, but 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 I'm not going to kid you either. You know, it's like my you know look. My my parents, you know, came out of you know Jim Crow, mm-hmm. and this Fort Myers is was not good, you know. Yeah, yeah. you know, and to this day, you know, it's like it's not good. But you know, like in 1950s, city of Fort Myers had a municipal code that you know said uh, you know like segregation, and it literally identified railroad tracks and said as a matter of cultural practice, that's how you justified it. Certain people had to be on that side of that track, you know, like by sundown, you know, and, and it's like my dad was buddies, you know, with the with the old guys like Snag Thompson and all that. And, 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 and you know, and that's where that I just simply was a racist. I mean, it's, it's racist, simple as that. And, and, and I'm, I'm really, I'm fortunate that I ha- that I w- was able to play the role of the circuit breaker. You know, and it hit me late in life, and it's a little while, you know, school, and, and uh, you know, my first professor in my civil rights class, it, we did a long arc from abolitionist to now, and it, it blew my mind. Would that have been in high school or college? No, that was in grad school at University of South Florida. Okay. It, it, it blew my mind. I mean, it, and I always was one of those guys that's like, I can't watch the puppy commercials, you know, without crying, you know. And, the Sarah McLaughlin yeah. ones. Yeah, yeah. You know, and, but, you know, you have a responsibility. If you're not going to send them any money, at least you have to see it, you know, because you know what's going on. And, um, you know, so Fort Myers is, you know, 
Yeah, that was an early period when Fort Myers you know, was kind of what I'll call sta- at stabilization, you know, before the big growth curves, you know, started and Cape Coral suddenly took over and uh, politically and all that. But that's Fort Myers. I, you know, look, put it to you this way. I was clubhouse boy for the Pittsburgh Pirates, spring training, okay? I'd be one of the first guys in the clubhouse along with a guy named Roberto Clemente. Mm-hmm. Okay, Clemente. He rented an apartment on Lime Street in the Dunbar area of Fort Myers. Because of segregation, he couldn't even go with the team mm-hmm. to stay at the Bradford Hotel or to a golf event on Fort Myers you know, Country Club. Golf. This guy's a 300-lifetime hitter, a humanitarian who died delivering food to Guatemala after an earthquake. But that was Fort Myers. That's the insanity of it. Yeah. Roberto Clemente. So... It was interesting for me as we, you know, we'd sit in that clubhouse and he'd, he'd want to, he'd sit me down next to him and, he, and he'd want me to tell him, you know, about my life, you know, school and, and, and all that. And, and, and that's, it was one of those great moments, but, but only now I realize what was going on, that paradox. Um, hmm. Makes but, me think of um, um, the actor who played Uncle Remus in Song of the South. Not, he couldn't, um, he couldn't attend the premiere. Of wow. the film, even though he was the only live live actor in an animated movie, because he, they, there were no there were no blacks allowed in the yeah. in the theater. Oh, you got the legendary what's her name, Marion Anderson, or that was a singer that came and sang you know, in Washington, and she was yeah. going to do another performance, but you know, Daughters of the American Revolution wouldn't let her sing. You know, so Mrs. Roosevelt, you know, became her friend, embraced her, and it happens everywhere. Hmm. It's our legacy. Let's uh, let's get to your first song. Um, what is it? Why is it? Um, well, the first song is "My Back Pages," and uh, the version I selected is by the Birds, and it's 1967. It's a song that was written by Dylan in 1964, and it has such a long arc. It was you know the Ramones did a version of it, and that uh, was just pretty pretty good. Um, I picked the three songs because they're a trilogy. And what they they're they're a birth canal for me, you know, like the, you know the end of the innocence, you know, because <laughs> I I'm I, you know you come out of elementary school, your safe little warm and fuzzy neighborhood school. Was that uh, Orangewood, by the way? You got yeah me, yeah me too. Did you really? Oh yeah, oh yeah. Serious? Oh serious. Oh Woody, I got so much background on you. <laughs> Keep going. <laughs> yeah. Wow, well, that's cool. Um, yeah, that's neat. But um, so you know, you go from there. To, we have four miles junior high, all right? So you you know you you went from knowing everybody in the streets around you to like now you got you know the other side of Cleveland you know or McGregor and so it became something different you know and it was and it was a choppy the water was choppy back then you know and um, so when like when this song in '67 you know like like I said you know these were turbulent times you know and this was the beginning but I was leaving you know Orangewood. And the words finally started to make sense. And it's that one line, I, you know, I was so much older than, I'm younger than that now. It, 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 had, it had that question. It, this song didn't provide answers. This is a song that, gave, that provided questions. So that, that is when I knew I, would take, I was beginning my journey, and there would be other questions later. All right, you want to listen to it? Sure, yeah. All right, My Back Pages, this is the version by The Birds from their 1967 album Younger Than Yesterday. What's it like listening to that now, like as intently as you do when we do this? 
Um, it's very powerful for me. It's, it, it's very powerful. It's I don't know. It's, it's transformative. It's a transform, you know, transformative moment. You know, the thing about this song, it takes me back, but it, but it also delivers me forward. And um, it's funny. I listen to it now, and I'm like, geez. You know, I was so much younger than I'm older than that now. <laughs> you know, but now nah, you know it's this. Yeah, you know, this one's big. This is a big. This this is where the fork in the road. You know, you're gonna go right, <laughs> or you're gonna go left. You're gonna have long hair. You're gonna have short hair. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and uh, I was I was heading left <laughs> from a long before this. But did you have long hair? Yeah, of course. Didn't Were you like full on hippie? Pretty much, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. That, yeah. I mean, I was a late bloomer, you know. <laughs> <laughs> my parents were Southern Baptists, so I, I you know, I, my my routine, you know, was, uh, like didn't really start until Gainesville. But there, once once I hit Gainesville, it was it was no coming back. Um, did you know you were going to go to UF? Was that kind of like a foregone conclusion for you as a you know high school student? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Always was. Um, in the thing that you sent me, you said that at UF is where everything changed. Can you elaborate on that? You just alluded to it, but yeah, yeah, you know, and it's timing because I got there in the fall of '72, and they, you know, say, so, I mean, the background, you know, you got Vietnam, you know, really, you know, it was raging, and uh, the year before I got there, you know, student administration, you know, that you know, students for democratic society, you know, took, you know, one of the most, you know, the new left, you know, took over the Tigard Hall. And Florida Highway Patrol had tanks with tear gas, and uh, and I had two cousins in Gainesville who were radicals. And, you know, one was president, head of SDS, and the other one was like you know, top of his class in Florida law school, and he read and he represented only draft dodgers. So I knew where I was heading, and it was, and it was right where I wanted to go. You know, I was just like I was in the crosshairs. You know? Yeah, I was, I was like, let's get it on, man. What was uh, what was the music happening there then? Gosh, well, in 1972, you know, it, it, it was kind of more like Zeppelin, you know. It was like, we're hearing like yeah, a lot of Zeppelin, you know, and um, who, you know, like, you know, just heavy heavy rock, you know, good rock. And, um, you, know, with, you know, with the thump bass, you know, that, that could move you and push you. But in the you know, lyrics were more mystical and mysterious, you know, but uh, but. You know, we had a lot of you know a lot of bands you know come through, you know, like Rolling Thunder Review, Dylan, you know, and others. But you know, I saw time. You know, my my fall first fall quarter, we have the Halloween ball at the University of Florida, you know, Plaza of the America. You know, mm-hmm. and you know the stuff I saw there made me realize I was long way from home <laughs> there, wasn't, there wasn't any going back there for sure but you know but like tom petty at dubs you know and all that stuff and hanging out at lillian's and um it was great it was a, it was it was it were you um actively joining protest movements uh do i have to answer that <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah i was yeah absolutely I, I you know as soon as i got there i um I I joined up with the McGovern campaign, the presidential election, the one where you know, Nixon won. That kicked him, kicked him bad, and and it's I, I remember I went into the McGovern campaign headquarters, and they this they had a poster, you know, of a, of a young African American child with a tear coming down his eyes, 
and as soon as I got I get choked up, as soon as I saw it, you know, I knew I was in the right place. I mean, just at that moment, and and that picture has stayed with me forever. And um, and after it was all said and done, you know, and um, I asked him if I could have the poster, and they gave it to me. You still got it? Uh, yeah, I do. Hmm. Um, so you did four years at UF. Did yep. you go straight to grad school after that? <laughs> no. Did you? That was still the war. Were you up for possible drafting? Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, I signed up. For, <laughs> I was down at Sydney Burn Davis Art Center a while back, and I said. Damn, I haven't been in this place since I signed up for the draft, <laughs> you know, because <laughs> you know, I was like right there in that building, you know, like that corner. Um, but I was, the fr- you know, you know, they mind gamed us with this thing, you know, called the lottery, you know, but you know, school system didn't get any money, right. and uh, so you know, you watch TV, and, you know, like you know, if you got if you were like two hundred or over out of three sixty five because they did your birthday, you know, then you're home free. You know, I think I was like 125, but then they, you know, I was the year they stopped, the, like stopped the draft. And my buddies uh, that were, you know, the year behind me, I mean, from some very, you know, what I will call, you know, economically uh, enabled families, um, that they were booked to go to, they were going to Canada. I mean, there, nobody, nobody was sending their kids to Vietnam, you know, in 72. You know, not in that time, seventy four and so forth. Nobody. Hmm. Um, so, when did graduate school come along? This is funny. Um, well, I came out of Gainesville, went to work. I was a week from starting graduate school in architecture in Gainesville. My dad came over to Bill Frizzell's office where I worked, asked me if I'd stay out of school a year to help him with a family business. I stayed out of. 40 years, <laughs> you know, <laughs> so, you know, so, uh, on my 60th birthday, okay, I understand. That. It was like, it was, it was my gift to my, uh, he was, yeah, I, yeah, a year, you know, I stayed, you know, I was there and he's gone. And, but, uh, so on my 60th birthday, um, I went to grad school, at University of South Florida, St. Pete. I drove up and back twice a week, 20,000 miles. And I got a master's degree in Florida studies. But it, it's uh, um, you kind of you get to pick your courses, and so what I did is I, I picked all history, like and it's first one I walked in was civil rights, and it just, it, 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 well, again it was one of those paradigms. Everything was different, and the second you know and, and that was Professor Ray Arsenal, who's like you know, John Hope Franklin, chair of Southern history, and and then this next semester with him, um, I took. Um, uh, culture, of the, you know, American culture of the 1960s. And it was, you know, and the first thing we did, bring in songs. Hmm. You know, like, kind of like get to, and, and, and had to do a, project, a little thing called My Generation. Because, mm-hmm. you know, 60s, for example, like there's the long, the long 60s, short 60s. But people have a tendency to, you know, like I like to use a, like a calendar, you know. It's like the 60s was not January 1, 1960 to you know, right. You got. It. I mean, we got the Cold War. We got all these influences, and, and you know, and all that. And um, so it was. It was interesting for me, like, and doing this thing called my generation. Um, I said, my generation. Um, we we began on that day when, and I think seventy four, when Nixon was getting on the helicopter doing his flying V's like he's some big shot. 
you know, after he's disgracing himself in the country. And it ended on December the 8th, 1980, when John Lennon was shot on the streets of New York, uh, murdered by the freak that was holding, you know, catching the rye. Um, so that was my generation. Hmm. And um, so I, that's where it was. Um, what was the best concert you ever saw at Lee Civic Center? God, Lee, Lee Civic Center. Um, I figure that's like probably the most known, nah, nah, known nah. venue here. Yeah, no, no, no. Yeah. Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. Yeah. Yeah. I've seen him a couple times. I've seen him here and, you know, over at the arena uh, here, but. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, we used to make fun of this. Like, you're talking about the box, right? I oh, yeah. Think, yeah, oh, right, yeah, yeah. Because, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like in, a, in architecture school, the exact same building is in Tampa, like an I-4 and you know, the, one of those other major art, arterials. And, mm-hmm. and you know, so, you know this, this is like Fort Myers' legacy. You know, I mean, we, we don't, you know, culture, arts, and all that stuff, we can, the budget didn't include that. So what they do, they borrowed the architectural plans from Tampa and built the same building here, like, you know, Dorothy and the tornado and just poof, <laughs> you know, here it is. You know, the only problem was when I walked out, I wasn't in Tampa, you know, right. <laughs> you know, but yeah, I mean, there were shows here, but I, I think Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers was like, was, you know, I mean, they rocked. They were good. Uh, yeah, I've seen, I got to see them five times i think and that was the best he was always the best yeah. um uh, you you sent a list of all kinds of concerts that you've seen you know do you have a sort of a peak concert experience or have there's just been too many that you can't even distinguish them well you know they, they come in categories uh, you know i think in terms of the like the, the yeah you know, I, I like singer songwriters you know like jackson brown you know and, and you know neil young and all those guys so i i got i i got them I was standing outside in Jacksonville. One of them saw uh, Jackson Brown. It's a tour for the Pretender, and uh, you know, two of my buddies were went around back. And this girl comes up to me and says, "Would you like to meet Jackson Brown?" This is like me going to see Comedy, and it's like I, my life story. Why me? <laughs> and so I go, "Yeah, right. Wouldn't you?" <laughs> she goes, "No, no, no." She goes, "I'm I'm the manager, the tour manager." So took me to the door and says he's with me and goes in. There's there's Brown. And he's squatting down, talking to like fifty girls, and writing a, a, a poem on a girl's arm with a sharpie. <laughs> you know, and I, I wait for it to clear out. You know, and then you know, I go over and talk to him. And this, I remember this one question I asked him. I said, "What do you read? You know, this allegory and metaphor and all this stuff." And he goes, "Yeah, yeah." Nobody's ever asked me that. And uh, he goes, "Right now, Kurt Vonnegut gets slapstick." Nice. And now on my phone, I have his phone number because I collect vintage guitars at Norm Harris in Los Angeles. That's where Petty and all those guys got their Rickenbackers. And you have Jackson Brown's phone number? Uh, yeah, I do. We won't bother him right now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, just real quick, you, you posted something on Facebook the other day that was like a picture of, I don't know, I'm going to guess 40 guitars. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> what was that all about? They were the same yeah, guitar, yeah. right? No, well, yeah. Well, no, nearly. Right, yeah. Well, you know, I had this idea. Um, like you know, I can multitask, you know, <laughs> and I I got to you know I I play guitars my whole life. I've known guitars, and so I started figuring like on eBay, you know, this is when eBay was like kind of you know, like going mainstream, and I'm watching these guitars go through, and I'm you know it's like arbitrage, you know, it's like there's you know somebody's left value on the table here. And I'll give you an example. My first one was over here at um, 
Owen Fowler at uh, whatever that place is, Guitar Center. Okay? Right. Yep. So I had some buddies that played in a band out at the Buddha, and uh, they worked there, and they said, you need to come over and see this bass. It's a 51 Fender P bass, Precision. That's the first year they made them. So I go over there, and, and I said, give me a screwdriver, Phillips Hick. Because Fender, everything's bolt, you know, bolt neck, unlike Gibson where it's glued and all that. So I, I, I did the screw, took the neck off, and, sh- and this is a trick. So I looked at the bottom, and there's a signature and the date from the guy that made it. Wow. So it confirmed what it was. And my friend said, you better buy it now because you got Cliff that's coming in from ACDC to yep. pick it up. And you got Randy, whatever, you know, that <laughs> lives on the other side um, um, coming in. So I said, I take it. So I bought it for like five grand and sold it for 10 grand on eBay. And, and to think I took five grand from Guitar Center, <laughs> I said, this is too easy. You just never go in there again and just be a winner. <laughs> no, right. You couldn't do that again if you wanted. But so after that, it's like I got on eBay. But those those are all uh, Les Paul, Custom Shop, like what, what we call LPR 9s, would be a 59 reissue standard. Um, or 58, you know, same thing. Those, those are the two greatest, you know, Gibson Les Pauls ever. And they come from one guy. So when you're on, when you start doing this, you know, you hook up with a dude that has Gibson acoustics, you know, one guy that's got Rickenbackers, you got one guy that's got Vox, one guy that's got these. And so I had just got in, I, I bought like 18, because I had it down where I would get them from him for like 3,800 bucks. And all I had to do was open the top, lift it up, go, yep, that's it, put tape back on it, send it to a guy in Canada for 4500 Huh. But so I just happened to have a, you know, a bunch of them at one time, and those, those, are, those are very good guitars. And there was what? There was at least 20 there, right? I think 24, 24. yeah. <laughs> okay. yeah, yeah. Um, uh, how do you listen to music these days? Yeah, wow. You know, it's, uh, I do a lot of YouTube, Spotify, um, and I, I think my network, because I have five sons, um, you know, I still go to shows, a lot of shows. And my son, you know, I have a son that lives in Ireland, you know, in Dublin. And so we go to shows there. And, um, and before that, he, you know, he's got these, these kids are really into my morning jacket. And, yeah. and uh, you know, jacket's big. And uh, so they took me to, a, we went to Washington, D.C. and saw jacket. And um, and that, that was, those guys are unreal, you know. But I, I, I I used to trade out uh, like real estate appraisals, like for CDs, like you know, down there at you know, Happy Note or Rainbow Records, you know. And so, <laughs> so I went in there and got a three thousand dollar credit. And, you know, I came out with so many CDs, and I remember my nephew came down, looked at him, he said, "God, you know, you're old." <laughs> yeah, he says, you, "You need to, you need Radiohead." <laughs> you know, and it's like start. I go, oh, all right, man. Did your uh, did your kids ever take you to a concert? The band surprised you. How good it was. Yeah, I mean, yeah. What's, what's the first? What's the most recent one you remember? My morning jacket, oh, yeah. and I'll tell you. Yeah, and the other one was like it was Wilco, you know, with Tweedy. Mm-hmm. Jeff Tweedy. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, it's like gee whiz, you know, like my God. I mean, these guys—they sound like I, one of my favorite guys, Graham Parsons, and you know, Flamarito Brothers, and you know, I, you know, here he is from Winter Haven. You know, like what? How can this be? You know, and I, <laughs> I happen to be in Joshua Tree. And I stayed, I spent the night in the room that he died in. That's how crazy my life is. Uh, <laughs> the Joshua Tree Inn, I think it was room nine. 
Um, and you know, every, everybody wants to stay there, and they got these little memorials glued to the wall. You know, it's like a voodoo room. You know, but uh, yeah, but Wilco was you know the Tweedy and those guys like Jay Farrar from you know Sunvolt and all that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah they, you know they were they played a lot of stuff that was uh, you know you know Graham Parsons and uh, yeah, that's it. All right, song number two. Abraham, Martin, and John? Yes, sir. How would you like to handle this? Um, I'll just, let me, I'll just say something, go on in and, and pick it up on the way out. Sounds great. You know, this was 68. Right? You know, by 68, you know, 65, we had Watts, you know, and I call it the rebellion, not the riot. Um, and, you know, once again, police, militarization of the police, brutality. You know, you know, no representation, no schools, you know, no jobs. You know, it followed you know, what was called the northern migration, you know, the African-American community. And so here, here we go. I mean, 68, the Tet Offensive, you know, Johnson suddenly not going to run, you know, seek the nomination of the presidency. And, you know, then after that, April the 4th, you got assassination. Dr. King, you know, and then June, you know, June the 6th, you got the assassination of Bobby Kennedy. It's like literally. I mean, in sixty, I mean, and I mean that literally. You didn't know when you woke up the next day whether or not the Earth was going to be here. I, I swear to you. I mean, the Vietnam War is blazing, and and, and as we all know, it's like in the sixties we had color TV, and the war was brought right into your living room. I mean, you know, these and all this stuff. So this song came out. You know, it, it, it was at a time of peak turbulence, you know, and, um, and it was almost like a pause, kind of like what we're going through now, the great pause, I call this. And it was like the psalm. And you just like, calm down, everybody. Let's just take a breath, reflect, you know, and then we'll see where, see where we're going to go. Let's listen to it. Um, yeah, you know, sometimes the music is enough, you know, like the bass line, you know, coming into that, you know, and it's, you know, it's the you know, stereo, like you hear everything out of the right ear and all of a sudden that bass line comes in like, you know, like on the left ear and it's, boom, 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 boom. and it's just like, you're there. And, I, and then what I heard this time that really like was illuminated, you know, is that that organ, you know, it's like, man, it's like, it's like being in church, you know, it's like, you know, like suddenly, you know, you're a member of the congregation and, uh, and, and you walk out the door of that church and now you're going to become a witness. And, uh, we chose to be witnesses. And, um, I think, you know, the next song will make that very clear, but that, yeah, that, you know, yeah, 68 was it. I just I can't overemphasize 68. 68 was it. And because when 68 was over, it's like I went to Fort Myers High School. I'm there, you know, I'm, this broke my heart. I mean, I'm, I'm there one week, okay? And it's Friday. We have a football game Saturday night. And so the tradition is to play Dixie. Last time, and this is the last time I've ever heard it, I can tell you that. So that the Dixie started... And the tension built up all week because we're really like in just two years, uh, you know, after, you know, segregation. It's not integration. Big difference, okay? And so we had a riot. 
and it broke my heart because I played sports. And these are guys, you know, like, it just broke my heart. And, and um, these are my friends, you know, we like playing basketball and all, you know, it's like. So a couple of my buddies and I just like, we're not going to do this. We don't do this. So we we got our surfboards and went to Sebastian Elm on Cocoa Beach. And they want us over, let us know, we'll come back. We're not, we don't do this. Hmm. That's the way it went. That song, um, I'm trying to, I, I don't know if I've ever really listened to it or I, I haven't listened to it that closely. Like, how was it received in the culture when it came out? It seems like that would, it might, you know, be embraced, but also might be kind of, you know, turned against. Yeah. Um, well, that's a very, very good question. You know, critical thing. And it's at what culture? You know, whose culture? I mean, yeah. I, I know, I know you, but I know what you mean. But uh, no, I mean, it was embraced. There's no question about it. it the, the, this, it really hit the airways because uh, Dion, you know, run around Sue the Wanderer and all that, and he had he, he was just he, he was just coming off a bit of a I think he had a heroin problem, you know, and, and so the guys that wrote it were a little worried and whether or not he could make it through it. So they he they really opened it with the Smothers Brothers. You, I don't know if you you know you guys are so young. You I know. remember the Smothers Brothers. Yeah. One of the brothers lived here in town for a while. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I know. Yeah, he was. Yeah, he was married to a friend of mine, and uh, his dad was a lawyer a downtown. Yeah, but uh, yeah, he was a funny bird. I liked his brother a lot more. <laughs> yeah, the guy with the guild D fifty five. But the uh, yeah, so he's on the Smothers Brothers, you know, and, and he played it good. Finger picked it, and he, I mean, he was all over it. And and um, and I, I still watch it all the time. But yeah, it, you know, I think it went up to it went up to four. Like you know, the Canadians liked it a lot more than America, and uh, but it went up to four. Um, and it was just part of the it was part of the fabric, you know. Because you got to remember back at this time, uh, you know, the only thing we had to listen to was WMYR, whose little itty bitty towers over there on Hanson Street, and it was owned by the Hectors. Kid was on my little league team. So I mean, this is that was it, really? Yeah, that was it. I mean, that was that was it until you know, like in seventy one seventies, we got WQAM out of Miami. You know, I, you know, we used to have fun because we all tried to sound like you guys. You know, it'd be like you, know, you didn't see him in concert. He made no public appearances, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> the number the number two song for the year nineteen seventy two, Marvin Gaye. Let's get it on. You know, it's like, <laughs> you know and, that, and that was QAM. You know, right. And then, then you, you know, and then you get FM, and then boom, you're off to games where you got it all, you know, WGBL, and just boom, it's like, you know, everything. Hmm. That's the first time I've heard that, you know, painting of a picture of what radio was like then in Fort Myers. I would have guessed that was more. Yeah, it was more. You, know, you got they had uh, the Harry thing on Bayshore Road. This is Fort Myers, okay? You know, my sister, as soon as, as soon as she got her high school diploma, she left in North Carolina. And said, "You're hicks. You guys are every one of you are hicks." So, you know, so I remember, well, they used to have this thing. It'd be like the Harry, it's been spotted, like, you know, the, you know, the Harry thing on Bayshore Road. Everybody drive their cars out there and drive this for, try to find this, whatever you call it, you know, but uh, the Harry thing. Harry uh, how, t- how old were you when she left, when she got out of town? 60, I, yeah, she, I, she was seven years older than me, and it was 1965, so I would have been 11, yeah. Yeah, it, 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 she she was gone before I knew it, and and yeah, the, the tail end of that story is she died in '89 of breast cancer. You know, so it's like, you know, it's like that last song. You know, I looked around and she was gone. You know, 
Another thing on that song too, you know, like Abraham Martin and John. Where's Bobby Kennedy? <laughs> you know? Yeah, I thought he got he got mentioned in right, the song. Yeah, right, yeah, yeah. The very last, the very last lines. Yeah, no. And uh, but and that song, you know, it's got the story just like the next one. I mean, that's that song, like just you know, like the two guys that wrote it. You know, they were watching something on TV, like after this one of the assassinations, and the guy gets in his head, and they go to St. Petersburg, you know, and pull off there and uh, get it out, and it became a hit. And um, but it, it was a, a song that rose up from the, the ashes of, of some horrific event of the '60s. You know, I, I, I just wanted to ask. You know, um, we talked about that. We talked about that song. You know, remarking on being a pivotal moment and being aware of it in the song and in the title. And I just wanted to know, like, you know, we've talked a lot about right now feeling a certain way, and you were there then. Does I mean, does it feel like that? Did it feel like that? Or did you just, was it just, this is today, tomorrow will be another day, and we're just going to keep going? No. It, it was like you, you knew you were, God, you know, you knew, you, you knew you were in this important period, not a moment. It was, it was like, you know, the river was flowing, and some people had to swim upstream, and others got a free ride going hmm. downstream. And what I see what's going on, you know, with the descent and the street, you know, and, and Black Lives Matter and so forth. Police brutality. I mean, it's the same damn thing. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't care what anybody says. It's what I was, I, we've lived through it. I talked to Ramsey Clark about it. It's the same thing. You know, haven't, what are we, it's like, why is it so hard to progress? I mean, what is it? What's wrong? You know, I mean, why don't we just put on Imagine by John Lennon and hear the answer, you know? I mean, it's like, What's, why can't we, why can't we pull the rope together? I don't get it. I just don't get, I don't get it. This world could be such a better place. Um, so you took a long time to start your graduate school, and then two years ago you <laughs> took more time, and you went, so let me see if I got this right. You moved to Ireland, sold your business, moved to Ireland, decided to do a Ph.D. Yep, yeah, sure did. And um, you, your dissertation, you said, is on liberal democracy and radical dissent. Was that where you started arcing toward and wound up here at the same time of where we are, or did it get modified by what's happening? Uh, no, I took that with me. But well, but the thing about doing uh, like a dissertation, you know, your you know your central question to your thesis, and you know, and all that, it's constantly morphing. You know, not morphine, you know, like, you know, it's not an opiate, but like uh, changing, you know, you know, in real time. So I cannot watch this, what I'm seeing, you know, like, you know, I got I, the guy in the White House, like Spike you know, Lee, it's awesome. you know, come on, man. It's like, listen, what's going on? You know, get with it. So anyway, I, I took my liberalism over there. Okay, and I, my professor is this is you know it's interesting. He's about he's probably fifty, you know, <laughs> like forty eight. I mean, highly acclaimed. He one of the he got his PhD from Cal Berkeley, um, several books, um, big time. And um, and the only reason I got in is he had a slot, and I was I'm a good writer. I got a good recommendation, and we fit. You know, it's because it's. Ramsey Clark's a central actor in my dissertation, but my dissertation is really about using his life in a biographical context, much like this, to sketch out the contours of post-war American liberalism and radicalism, which is dissent, which is why we're, you know, radicalism is nothing but direct action, and, you know, and that's it. 
exercising your constitutional rights. Like, boom, there it is. It's a healthy thing. Uh, Do you feel like what's happening now in any way rises to the levels that we saw back then, or are we still in infancy stages compared to what was going on in, like, 68? Well, you know, that's it depends who you ask. I guess those kids in the street yeah. probably don't think so, you know. And like I said before, I, you know, 68, I was a witness and a bystander, you know. Um, but I, t- I, you know, I'm you know, jumping ahead. I, you know, we're going to hear a song soon that'll, uh, you know, involve. We can go right there now if you want to start. Yeah. And, and, and I think some of the evidence to answer your question is this next song, The Bullets. That you know, a reference in that song are are real, whereas the bullets today they probably hurt just as bad and they're injurious, but they're rubber. You know, so anyway, this that that's I think key. Do you want to just listen to that song now, or do you want to talk about it more, or you want you want, you want, you want to talk about something else? And we come back to it. Yeah, yeah, let's go ahead and hear it. I think it'd be good. All right, this is um, Ohio by Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young from the 1971 album Four-Way Street. Can you remember the first time you heard that? Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Seems like that'd be the kind of song that you would not forget hearing. I think the day it came out... Um, and it, it, this is a, a song. It's just, it's got again. It's like it's like there must be a God. A spirit. There's a spiritual thing to it. You know, Crosby shows Neil Young the cover of like you know Life magazine. The guy that got the you know Pulitzer Prize for that photo of the girl crying over the the woman dead you know on the ground. And he showed Neil, and I I got lucky. I met Neil too. I don't, I don't know why, but the uh, that means nothing. But um. Neil was was so moved. I mean, I mean, Neil. You know, he was a Canadian. He wasn't even American. You know, and he, and he saw that. And Canadians, it's like a lot of times they you know, you know they get away with stuff that you know Americans couldn't. Huh. But yeah, so he saw that they were he, that song was. It took something like fifteen minutes to write that song, and it was right after he saw that picture. Yeah, I, they they recorded it in May. Like when it happened, and they released it in June. You got it. Like, yeah, that's it. It's in less than thirty days. I think it was Amont Erdogan. You know, drove drove the masters like that. You know, it's a, that's like you know that's incredible. You know, that, that's like almost like social media. You know, that's that speed. You know, and you know, it's amazing. And, and another thing on the B side, they they need, they were just sitting around in the studio. Playing acoustic guitar and, and they needed a B side and the guy had the tape running and so find the cost of freedom is on the B side, um, which is you know like pretty good. But the other thing about that song too, um, you know that, that's the that was the rage. I mean, it's not just the anger, you know, enough, you know, of the, and it was it was the rage of of the generation, you know, it's like you know, we're not going to take it. Those people that got killed were exercising their constitutional rights to protest, you know, against, rise up against their government and peaceful protests. Yeah, they burned the ROTC building the night before. I, I get it, you know. And, and, and they, got, they got shot as a, as, as a dissenter. This country is, is based on dissent. And the idiot governor, you know, told them to put live rounds in those rifles and they killed them. 13 seconds, 68 shots. You know, another thing, too, is people overlooked that, it, you know, like two days later, Jackson State, you know, which is African-American, 
Uh, it's kind of like you know this one gets a little more coverage, I think, in the you know in the minds of history. But Jackson State, you had two people killed, like with, I think within the next week. Um, so really, in my mind, this is an important song. You know, when I looking back because. This clearly says, you know, this is the this is the end, you know, the the, the romance and the passion and the, you know, we're going to change the world of the '60s, um, you know. But you remember, like, well, okay, you know, right before this, we had Charlie Manson. I mean, literally. I mean, you know, right before that, we had uh, Altamont. You know, when, when, you know, if you got Hell's Angels as your security crew, you know, it's not, not it's probably not a good idea. And and they, you know, and they killed the guy in the crowd and. Before that, we had Woodstock, you know, and so, you know, I think it, you know, the like you know, Gonzo, you know, look out across that desert, you know, and the high water mark. Of the yeah, you know, I know that exact line. You got it, and you know, there it was. It, I think it was like Woodstock or whatever. And after that, somebody took the drain out of the bathtub, and you know, it's like, then we ended up with Nixon. You know. Um. As somebody who was, you know, involved in the protest movement, that song, I, I'm trying to think how to say it. Did, it. did it make you kind of proud that there were artists that would stand up that directly in the face of things and say things that needed to be said? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Was, suddenly, I because I'm only in 10th grade, you know, and I'm walking out of my Americanism versus communism, you know, BS, you know, propaganda class, you know, and... Yeah, you know, and you, you realize like there's just there's you're coming onto a time now. Mommy and Daddy can't protect you, you know. And it's like, what are you going to do? You know, where where are you where are you what side are you on? You know, are there sides? You know, and and so forth. But from that moment on, I I I, I knew where I was going. I knew what side I was I was on. And I'm telling that's when we like started. I was I, I hung out with the older guys. So it's like right after that, we did an underground newspaper for Martin's High School called The Expression. They tried to stop it. So we hired Billy Smith, former mayor, criminal defense lawyer, get you know, remind them there is a constitution, you know, we have the right free press and and so like so we did it. We started then and there. And uh it really never stopped. Never never stopped. Um are you engaged with what's going on now? Are you, you know, trying to move the needle with your cuz you you're a person known in this community yeah. and you're kind of known by everybody in a way that a lot of people aren't, you know? Well, I don't yeah, maybe, I guess. But the uh no, I'll tell you what I did. Um every summer, you know, I first of all, I tried to be engaged like I was on the board at Quality Life, you know, Q with Muhammad and mm -hmm. those guys and uh you know, help with the addition of the new edition, and, and that's a wonderful place. That's one of many wonderful places. And um, but I think one thing that I did that I'll stay with me forever was I took two young men and let them be, like, work in my office with me because I, I was a litigator, um, and I took them with me to court. I took them into judges' chambers. And, you know, two young African Americans from Dunbar, and this is funny because the first day I said, you know. You guys got to help me out. I mean, do you want me to say African American or black? And, and there's just you know these are kids and they're looking at me laughing and just going, yeah, Mr. Hansen, I've never been to Africa. You know, like <laughs> I don't know because you know, call me what you want. Call me by my name. You know, yeah. and so that was an eye opener. But uh, but it's funny because going through my mom's archives, you know. 
she's she's got she it's loaded with history about like the Dunbar community and the the, the, fam, the family that got in Fort Myers right after the Gonzalez's by about six days was Tillis, the Tillis family, and they lived in North Fort Myers across the river, and you know that you know that to me is fascinating, and and he had like six or eight children and he moved to this side of the river, and lived like. Almost next door to the Edison, to Mr. Edison, and Edison. There's pictures of Mr. Edison fishing with his children. You know, and as I and as I try to reach back and understand the culture, you know, or interpret, you know, Fort Myers. You know, the fact that Edison embraced, you know, what otherwise I'm sure in this community back then, you know, were, you know, were targets, you know, like racism and. You know, and so forth, and how Mr. Edison was liberal. You know, li- you know again, liberal northeast. You know, <laughs> right? Like, yeah. Uh, so, well, somebody had to do it, and uh, so that, that that was cool. But uh, yeah, you know, and um, I, you know, it's, I just try to you know be around the kids. Um, and I, just, I got five sons, like I said, and, and they're they're I've trained them and since, but I put wind in their sails. <laughs> so I'm curious, as someone who's experienced, you know, various protest movements, movements in general, there are so many individuals and especially young people right now that are figuring out their place and how to participate and how to go about the change that they want to see. Do you have any sort of advice or even comment to those people? Because I I can tell that some of them, they either don't know where to start or how to go about anything that they think might be meaningful or impactful in their community. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think number one is show up, and that's all. That was a concern um, with my professor Arsenal. We were talking, and because we're concerned, you know, I'm older, and you know, we got these 22, 23 year old kids in our class and civil rights and all that, and we're talking, we're talking about like how you, you know, we, we had this discussion about it. like how you guys, I mean, you're going to protest with social media, you know, all these little boxes, and you know, and. You, know, you got to go to the streets, you know. I'm going to tell you, you know, that's what we were saying. It's like you got to go to the streets. And this one, this one, this, I remember this one, this young man, African American, and he, he said something. He said, "We're just waiting on this generation to die." It, it was fascinating to me because, like, you know, his perception is like this one layer of racist. You know, once they're gone, and, like, and I think it's a beautiful thing about these current, you know, protests is the diversity. You know, this is not just a bunch of, you know, wealthy white kids who didn't have to go to Vietnam because they had draft deferments. You know, this these are people who got, you know, equity in the game and stakeholders. And uh, I'm, I'm amazed. I'm impressed. You know, and I'm impressed at how so many, you know, they look, they, they changed. Look at the people they brought out that responded to this and have, you know, raised their hands. I mean, you, you know. Colin Powell, man. I mean, you're you're looking at you know heart of the Republican era, you know, and and they're making a difference. But damn it, when it's over, there better be some change. Yeah, because I'm telling you, the genie ain't going back in the bottle this time. Can you imagine? Because there's been protests in downtown Fort Myers like every day, and some of them may only have 30, 30 people at them. But they are young and they're diverse, and they've been happening every day for the past three weeks. Can you imagine the Fort Myers from you know the 50s and the 60s, knowing that that was the future of the Fort Myers in 2020? 
Yeah, there's no, there, there was no way that that was reasonably foreseeable from the context of Fort Myers back then. No way. And it's really, it's a great story. You know, it's, it's, the, it's the American story. It's the social contract, I guess, if we can, you know, avoid breaking it. But, um, yeah, but I think if you want to find something, if you really want to see Fort Myers today, go, go look at some of the political ads, Okay. Everybody's got to get a, a rope tied and you get a free ride, you know, like their cars broke down you know, with a dude in the White House, okay? You might want to go look and see what the, our mayor of Fort Myers has got up on his website. And I will tell you this. <laughs> he has started a firestorm among women. And um, I don't know if he's doing this on purpose or, or if he's, you know, if he understands it. But, you know, you just you just don't do this. I mean, it's like people... You know, because of social media or whatever, you know, there's, you know, real time, you, you, you know, you better care what you say, what you do, because of cell phones and, you know, and, and, you know, networking effect. So, anyway. Um, okay, we're going to take this thing toward a landing now. We're going to get back on the Three Song Stories direct train, and we're going to answer some of the questions that we normally ask our guests. That We're going to lighten it up a little bit. If you were a championship wrestler, Woody Hanson, what kind of song would you come out to? Well, if I, you know, <laughs> yeah, uh, let's see. Well, first of all, I'd ask Gordon Soley you know, permission to do that after the great Malenko left the stage, you know, and Joe Scarpa let go of the sleeper hole. Yes. Because yeah, we used to go out here and see those guys. Yeah. yeah. You know, the armory, you know, that that was the salad, you know, I won't say the melting pot, the salad bowl. The armory was where it happened, man. If you like, you know, I'm, you know, my best friend Tom Wiley, his mom, you know, it's like, got a little pillbox hat, you know, <laughs> takes us to the wrestling matches, you know, you know, like, whoa, this is good. God, if I was a wrestler, man, yeah. Hold on, like hold on, (laughs) hold on, hold out. You know, I don't know. Like, no, that's a good answer. (laughs) You, uh, so you've played guitar all your life. You still play a lot. Yeah. Do you? Do you uh, you sing? In the bathroom, you know, or stuff like you know. I no, I do. We, I got, you know, I got friends. You know, not like we used to, but yeah, yeah. Ever been any bands? Yeah. Oh heck yeah, man! Like Not, not in one now, are you? No, you're not in that Doug McGregor band. Seems like you might know that Doug McGregor yeah, band. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, right? Yeah, you got it. <laughs> They're good, you know. But you know, but like ours started out with Little Black Egg, you know, the Nightcrawlers out of Miami, you know, like. It was that was where you had those two part harmonies that were easy. But um, do you have any TV theme songs committed to memory you'd like to sing with us? Any well, the TV answer, theme songs? The answer is no. no. But, <laughs> because you know, I, I listen to that's a pop that I, I object to form you know, or whatever. Okay. <laughs> Polysyllabic. Poly, poly Polysyllabic. Uh, um, uh, if you can learn any other instrument instantly without having to try, what would you want to add to your repertoire? Piano. Piano. Yeah, keyboard. You ever play around with it at all? Yeah. I, I, yeah. I, you know, yeah, it's math. You know, exactly. Yeah, yeah, you get to the root, you know, then, you know, you can do a diminished seventh or whatever you're going to do. But it's all, you know, it's all about feel. Because, you know, when we started the day, you know, you're talking about, okay, you're going to hear the metronome, the click, you know, like, you'll go, okay, one, two, three. And I was having fun. I go, no, it really goes one and two and three. Because the great musicians play on the and, mm-hmm. you know, and, and I'll tell you, they ain't white guys. <laughs> <laughs> um. Uh, favorite band of all time? 
Favorite band? Or uh, musical act. Oh, man. Oof. Favorite band of all time. Well, you know, I mean, uh, I, you know, jeez, the hardest three songs. You know, I, I, you know, golly, I mean, current Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers, you know, it's like I got to see them a lot. And um, I got to see those guys playing with Mud Crutch. I was because I got to go to California a lot, and, and I was up. Uh, gosh, we were. I went once again. Went out there to get guitars, and uh, so we went up to the uh, Malibu Performing Arts Center and saw Mud Crutch and my buddy um, um, at the guitar store, um, Norm Harris. He, he gave me two tickets, sitting on the second row with Jackson Brown right here. And uh, and there's Petty right right here, and it's the first night of the tour for Mud Crutch, the you know the band that came out of Gainesville, and so then I go in to see Norm, and he says, yeah, "Bad news, he, you know, Tom doesn't like any of his friends down close on the first night, you know, you know that they're working a set out, you know, and so he says, so I got to move Jackson back to the sixth row, you know, so if you want to sit with him, you're not going to be on the second row." And I, and I, I go, you know what? I said, I don't want to sit next to Jackson Brown. You know, <laughs> <laughs> you know like, I mean, what? I mean, what? What do I got to give him? You know, <laughs> what? You know, it's, uh, I've lost my train of thought. Um, uh, oh, I, I, I just want to real quick mention the person who was in that chair one week ago right now was Glenn Miller, and he was telling a story yeah. about you and him going down into the channels to find Todd Brown's old place. Yeah. That, Oh, yeah. I'll tell you, you want to hear a story about Dodge Brown? Yes, that's why I just brought that up. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. But see, I, I'm good. You know, again, it's Indians, but it's like Chekolowski. I have a good, like, you know, Lynn Smallwood McMillan, that's like Ted Smallwood's door. Um, she's a dear friend of mine. And, um, she, and I, Chekolowski's like the last frontier, you know, uh -huh. and, and it still is. But, he, you know, he's going to do a story on old man Watson, you know. Side note, okay, he's only in Watson. They, you know, they shot him at the foot of Smallwood's door, like the, the residents, citizens, you know, of Chuckalusky. Um, and then his family went and got him, wrapped him up in canvas, and buried him out here on Michigan Avenue. And he's buried next to my grandmother. Wow. <laughs> and it was is wild because every, I'd go out, I'd go out there quite a bit and take flowers and stuff. There's always this steel rod in the ground with an orange ribbon. Like a surveyor, you know? And yeah, I was yeah. like, what the hell is that about, you know? And so I go up there, and it's old man Watson. So every time I, now, you know, if I see a steel rod, I take it, and I throw it, I throw it. I think, you know, that's how I began lived in the 10,000 islands. It was that hard to find when he's alive. It shouldn't be that hard. It shouldn't be that easy when he's dead. <laughs> but but it touch Brown, okay? I was just at his house where he wrote his book with Lynn. Like, it was the last weekend before we all shel started sheltering in, like March 16th. And we went in his house, and it's on this little mangrove little key. So it's still there. Yeah. Like we're, and I'll show you one before I leave the picture of it, and it's got a mangrove in front of it. It's an arch. But we went in it. Lynn Smallwood called me like, you know, two weeks ago and said, well, tell you about touch." Touch house? I go, no. She goes, they sold it. Family sold it. And the people that, I said, what did they sell it for? And, um, it was, you know, it was like 184000 or something. I'm like, damn. Mm. And, it, and it said, they got in this little house 
and they started, you know, like taking stuff off the, you know, like the wall, you know, as you can imagine, you know, Chukalowski is much like Florida, you know, the Pirates Empire built, you know, this is like second chance, you know, uh-huh. and all that, a Florida man. So anyway, the people that bought it and stripped the, the walls down, they got something, there's 600 and something thousand dollars in those walls. Oh boy. You know, so Tosh had, that was his bank, you know. I uh, I didn't actually sort of I didn't talk to him, but I got to be in his presence because I did I worked at Ives Bookshop back in the oh, early yeah. '90s, and he did a, a book signing there. Yeah. You know, probably '95, '96, something like that. Yeah, cool. Yeah. Um, and then I got to meet Peter Matheson, yeah. who wrote the book, <laughs> yeah. because he did a book signing for Ives. So. Wow. So yeah, you got wow. That's yeah, that's good. Yeah. Uh, and the other thing I had to bring up before this is all over is that the first place I met you, I'm pretty sure, was the Broken Niblick. Yeah, Kenny. I worked there in high school. Well, there you go. Because yeah. I played golf for Coach Sam. Well, there you go. And yeah. then you used to come in and hang out like everybody did. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, well, you got Kenny and Hap. Right? Yeah. 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 And it's like the only place you can go is like, you know, it's like having a buddy with a gas station lets you use the tools. You know? Exactly. Yeah. You can come in there with those putter feels a little wrong. And they let me cut an inch, you know, or you know, add a woodpecker. Yeah. That's great. That's yeah, good. Yeah. Our yeah. overlaps there. Um, okay. We're pretty much at the end of this train. Um, what would your 14 year old self, or you, we can move it to 17 year old self, what, what would the youth back then, if you could flash forward to the you now, think? Well, if I was 17, that would be 1971. I'd be leaving Fort Martins High School. I'd, I'd, I'd be like, you know, set me free, little girl. <laughs> like, I'm ready. These wings are ready to fly. Yeah, you but know? what would he think of Woody Hanson now? Oh, he'd be real surprised. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, yeah. Because, you know, you can 17, it, you know, that's scary. You know, you're coming out trying to find your place in the world and all that. I mean, you have, you know, and then later on, you have no idea how you're going to feed yourself, make a living. Are you going to have kids? You know, I, mean, I was a late bloomer, man. I, you know, I didn't have a solid girlfriend until like 76. And um, I think he'd be surprised at the mileage. You know, I mean, it's like we're, we're a long way from home. You know, we're, we're way down there. We're, we're way, way gone. And um, I think you'd be surprised at how I think you'd be surprised at how wonderful life has ended up being, despite the fear and uncertainty and unknown. All those things really become you know, variables that make it special and wonderful, and, and bring about change and binding friendships and all that. I, I think, in conclusion, uh, he, he would say, "How you know how how good how lucky for you." Hmm. Um, can you recommend three people? Who we should try to get on this show? Oh, yeah, for sure. I, I, and they got to be music people. No, no, no. Just anybody. Anybody you know. Well, I tell you what, I always say Lynn Smallwood. I mean, just her voice alone. I mean, she, she could sit there and say one word over and over, and it's like she's got that cracker thing. And uh, like she, you know, Love it. Yeah, Love I mean, it. you got to get her. Oh, she, you got to help us get uh, her. I'll, I'll, we'll yeah. set it up. Yeah, she's real good. Um, golly. Um, you want you got to stay in the county? No, not necessarily. Oh, anyone, anyone that you're willing to share this with? Can you, do, you? Let me ask you this: Can you do it on the phone, or they got to be in here? We can mail them a microphone. We can mail them a microphone. Man, <laughs> yeah, I, I got. Yeah, I, I, I think my professor Arsenal, mm-hmm. he's bad. I mean, mm-hmm. you, you, and he's you, at UF. 
USF. But oh, he, he's at oh, USF. Yeah, but no, when all this stuff broke, he went to D.C. because his, uh, his kids uh, are in the State Department. Okay. And, and we could also put him in a studio there pretty easy yeah. if he's on yeah. campus. Yeah, no, he'd be good. Yeah, and, and go Google him and look at what some of the stuff he's written for the same it's, – it's no longer like same – Tampa Bay Times. Yeah, right, yeah. He he's one, um, and uh, let, you know. Let me let me think about it, and I'll you know I'll text you because I mean yeah I mean that, that's a that's a great an opportunity you know I appreciate that that is to do this yeah, yeah yeah well we'll give you that time you give us a yeah. third one okay last question always is are there any songs that you'll avoid listening to if they come up on the radio for some reason especially because of what they make you remind you know they remind you of. Yeah, the, the Village People or KC and the Sunshine Band, you know, like disco, you know. It's funny because, I, you know, I love I love a lot of the Bee Gees stuff, you know, but, you know, by the time you get to Saturday Night Fever and all that, you know, it's like, uh, you know, or like Elton John, once he got past Yellow Brick Road, I was like, I'm done. You know? Yeah, it was, it was funny because I was going to mention you were you were naming all these bands and all this music from that era, but none of it was... was kind of disco even though because that, that was, was like, the other direction Rich. yeah because that was the other direction <laughs> yeah. and it was just it was just all dance and i was like man uh yeah. your, your big your big takes were were in an era where music wasn't necessarily um something that we look back on yeah, yeah I, I i get it you know it's like yeah i mean you know i'm not a good dancer you know but yeah but you know uh <laughs> You know, that music was played out at, you know, it wasn't the arena, but it was Crown Lounge, you know, mm-hmm. over there at the corner of Jefferson and 41. Mm-hmm. And you just go in there and it's like, it's this crazy-ass disco stuff, you know. And it's like, hey, I, everybody loves the beat, you know, the, you know, the good thump line, you know, and all the kick drum and all that. But, you know, I didn't like white on white and shoes, white belts and all that stuff. I just couldn't do it, you know. Cause, yeah. you know I'm, I'm thinking about, you know, Bob Marley. You know, I shot the sheriff, you know. That, that's what we needed here with Frank Wanago and took over. <laughs> <laughs> so much Florida tidbits here. Uh, thank you so much, Woody Hanson. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you, guys. It's, uh, it's really, a, truly an honor to get to be sitting in this seat. Thank oh, you. Gosh, thanks. We make three song stories in the studios of WGCU Public Radio on the campus of Florida Gulf Coast University in Fort Myers, Florida. Richard Chinqui is co-creator and producer. Tara Calligan is online content producer and periodic host. Chris Duffus is executive producer. Our theme song was created by Dave 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 Cowan and Stick Martin at Monkey House Studio in St. Pete. There's far too many of you dying. When thinking of a parting tune, it occurred to me to ask Woody if he would ask former Attorney General Ramsey Clark, who he's been interviewing for his dissertation, he was now 92 years old, if he had any songs that would always bring him back to a place in his life. Woody said when he asked him, he laughed and said his wife was a big Marvin Gaye fan and that he thinks her favorite of his was What's Going On. And while we didn't get the chance to hear more of that story from Mr. Clark, that was enough to bring me back directly to the very first song on our very first episode of this show with Bob Grissinger, which had brought Bob back to the late 1960s during a time of great strife when the liberal Ramsey Clark was attorney general. Full circle, I said. I was born and raised in a little eastern West Virginia town. Uh, about an hour outside of Washington, D.C., and I remember in the 60s, in the late 60s, I remember the horrible experiences that the country was going through. It was grappling its issues with 
with racial strife and uh, grappling with issues of the Vietnam War. I mean, our cities were burning in 1968. And I remember that when I first heard this song, it blasted me back three or four years. And since I was being raised by two of the most liberal individuals in the planet, I, I did have a social conscience, and I still do have an enormous social conscience. And this song really raised it for me. It really pointed out what we had been through. And I think that of all the Motown tunes, of all the Motown work, I think that that was done by Marvin Gaye is among the most remarkable and lyrical and touching stuff. But this one is so socially relevant, and it still is today. Keep listening. Next time on Three Song Stories. Good morning. (laughs) 